Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. End of the day. End of the day. It's all about practicing, practicing medicine. Practicing medicine at the end of one. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Good afternoon. Good evening, or whatever time of the day it is for you. I want to welcome you to the show. At the end of the day, a podcast about the lost art of medicine for those who are dissatisfied with healthcare's status quo. I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, and I've got my co-conspirators with me. Hey, guys. Good morning. How's it going, gents? You guys hanging in there? By a thread. Or a prayer. (laughs) Or both. Yeah, that's how it's feeling. So I wanted to ask you guys a follow-up from a few conversations ago. Have you worked on your advanced directives? Ooh, I cannot say that I have failed on that. I think the day after I went and sort of looked at stuff, but I'll be honest, I got sidetracked and, and I failed, so I get an F. I'm right there with you, Andy. I have not done anything further than that conversation myself. I have at least downloaded these steps to create an advanced directive for my healthcare provider. So I'm one step ahead of you guys. Sorry, here's the guilt and shame. If you're listening to this podcast, guilt and shame Andy and OS and me <laughs> until we get those done and post proof because it's important and I think we should all be doing that. I agree. I think this is one of those 36.2M moments. Unfortunately, it was a moment in which I failed, but that's okay because I've got a couple more moments in which I can uh, turn it around and and show success. There you go. So what do you got on the docket for us today? So we've got some really exciting topics today. The first one is a point counterpoint that was in, I believe, the US News and World Report on sort of the topic of universal healthcare. And I know each of us have touched on this in previous episodes, Um, but this was an article in which they tried to sort of show what the US specifically, typically says as sort of the reason why not to have universal healthcare. And then uh, pointed to other either nations or countries or other facts and figures uh, that actually proved that uh, the cost, the price, the delays, some of the the things that you hear uh, when people push back against universal healthcare may not necessarily be true. And so I thought it was really interesting. And I I think if I look at the article and, and remember it correctly, there was a total of 11 points. So I'm not going to go through every single point because that's just a, a podcast in and of itself. But I think it would be interesting if we kind of highlight a couple of them and then just amongst the three of us, thumbs up, thumbs down, or do we've got a, a sort of another aspect to it. So the first one that I want to highlight is governments are wasteful and shouldn't be in charge of healthcare. And so the, the counterpoint that they wrote to the statement is in 2017, the US spent twice as much on healthcare, about 17.1% of our GDP, as compared to organizations for economic cooperation and development countries, uh, which on average only spent about 8.8% of GDP, all of whom have universal healthcare. The country with the second highest expense after the US is Switzerland, 
at 12.3%, which is nearly 5% less of the US. But of all these countries, the US has the highest portion of private insurance. And in terms of dollars spent, the average per capita healthcare spending in the OECD countries is about $3,500. Whereas in the US, it's just over $10,000. And so their, their bottom line is that among industrialized countries with comparable levels of economic development government provided healthcare is much more efficient in economical than it is here in the US in which we've got a lot of private insurer, insurance companies, sorry. So I'm gonna open it up to the both of you and it comes to, to this specific point that governments are wasteful and shouldn't be in charge of healthcare. What do you guys think? What are, what's your opinion? I think with anything, things can be abused and be overspent, right? That's the case with anything. That's why we have accountability, at least on the local level with our government, and try to keep checks and balances. That's been something echoed for hundreds of years of having checks and balances in government. My question is, we already have government-run health care in the United States, in Medicare. And I believe Medicaid is government-run, correct? Yes. Yes. So what is the efficiency of those two systems that are currently being run by the government versus private insurance systems? I think AJ just opened up a whole can of worms with that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking at it saying, you know, people say hypothetically, we think that it'll be more expensive and more costly if government runs it. Well, we already have a private system that spends twice as much as any other country, excuse me, not twice as much, but more than any other country. and the, developed nation per capita. So how is our current government run two healthcare systems in comparison to the private insurance company run healthcare systems? I don't know if you have any stats offhand, Andy, to back that up. So not off the top of my head, I don't. However, just sort of based on my own experiences, I would say they're both kind of clunky and kludgy. I think there's paperwork, there's pre-authorization, uh, there's in-network, out-of-network. I think there's... What if everybody was in-network? What if we got rid of in and out-of-network? What would that do to the system? As a specific to government ran or specific to just all insurances across the board? Well, from, from my outside understanding, insurance companies, both government and private, use the amount of customers they have as a bartering system to lower costs and negotiate costs with healthcare systems that are in and out of network. Now the problem is that you can be in an in-network hospital but get treated by an out-of-network doctor. We've got this weird complex four healthcare systems running at the same time system with ridiculous stupidity and layers of bureaucracy what if we just simplified it by saying there is no out of network system because you can't go you wouldn't go to a a dealership with your car and say oh sorry we can't we can't fix your car we're a we're a Ford dealership and you have a Ford car but we're not in network you know that would be really weird so if we take that analogy of Ford the reality is is that if you happen to drive an Audi and you go to a Ford dealership you can't get it fixed i think where maybe we should sort of focus on this specifically is healthcare in the US is ran as a business. And whether it's a hospital, whether it's an integrated delivery network, 
whether it's a pharmaceutical company, whether it's an insurance company, even doctor's offices, they're all ran as a business. And so because of that, and sort of industrializing the, the medicine that we sort of want, need, and crave, it's a business. And because of that, there's paperwork, there's bureaucracy, there's trying to put your arms around market share and patients within a population and who gets preference over which group of patients and referrals and, and whatnot, because everyone is trying to protect their piece of the pie from a business perspective. I think that's quite honestly, the harsh reality of what this business called healthcare is in the US versus what medicine is like in other parts of the world. But Wes, what's, what's your thought or take on this? If we look at this as a business, if we look at healthcare as a business, right? The question is, what is the value that is being offered? So if you look at US healthcare economics, you know, the annual US healthcare expenditures is $3.5 trillion. Now, as you mentioned, it's almost 18% of the, the entire US healthcare is made up of the GDP. You know, when you look at that, what is the value of the money that we're spending, right? And we know our expenditure per capita is by far higher than any other country. But what's our life expectancy, right? So that's the ultimate goal. If you're spending so much on healthcare, you would expect your life expectancy to be higher, but it's not. You know, we, out of most of the developed countries, our life expectancy in the USA is about 78.6 years. Whereas if you look at other countries, it's significantly higher. Japan has the highest life expectancy of about almost 85 years old. So when you look at what the value is that you're getting based on what you're spending in terms of your GDP, I don't know that we're really getting the value out of healthcare in this country, at least. So my question for both of you and OS, maybe you can have some insight on this is, you know, you look at our value that we get out of our healthcare system, which is pretty low for life expectancy. What is our value for outcomes? I do remember reading an article that we rank either at the bottom or close to the bottom on infant mortality outcomes among developed nations. So what do we rank best at outside of spending on healthcare for outcomes? So it's interesting, AJ, that you mentioned that. So there's the study that you're referring to actually rates the maternal mortality in the US is 30 individuals per 100,000 births and 6.4 per 100,000 births on average in comparable countries, which is nearly five times worse. So think about how much we're spending and how, what our expenditures are, but what are we really getting in terms of value? And, you know, we work in the healthcare, we work in radiation oncology, and I'd love to turn that over to cancer care. And what are we spending in terms of cancer? And are we getting what is of value? For cancer care and if you think about it from that way we are all aware that radiation oncology just instit, uh, instituted a radiation oncology alternative payment model and that is an incentive that the government is using to try to minimize the cost and expenditures and try to really drive value for their constituents and i think that's where we're headed we're headed i think the government realizes that we are not providing the, the real bang for your buck or the value in terms of health care and that's why they're moving towards bundled payment methodologies, whereas historically everything has been you know, fee-for-service, which incentivizes the healthcare organizations to do more procedures. But I think the government is catching on. They're realizing that healthcare is run as a business, and now they're trying to kind of provide better care and better value to their patients. 
So thinking about radiation oncology and cancer, and, and that's a really interesting point. One thing that I hear from my parents, especially who are very libertarian, is that, well, if you go to these, you know, quote unquote, socialist countries, they just don't have the equipment we do or the, the knowledge we do or the specialists we do. You know, how, when you look at worldwide developed nations, comparative countries to the U.S., how does that fan out? Do they have access to the same medical care and devices and technology and knowledge? I mean, I would assume so, but I don't know the facts specifically. From my perspective, what I you know sort of see across the globe is that other countries do have access, especially developed countries. So you think of Europe, you think of obviously the U.S., you think of Japan, you think of like Hong Kong, even mainland China in a lot of their, you know, sort of tier one cities, they all have access and they've all got similar technology to, to what we have here in the US. I would even go as far as saying, if we take this example of cancer care, recently in the US, uh, there's been some trials going on uh, looking at the efficacy and the use of an isotope called PSMA. And what PSMA does is PSMA highlights metastatic prostate cancer or prostate cancer that has come back in what would typically be a patient that has had a prostatectomy or they've had treatment before or, or whatnot. And it's interesting because the U.S. is actually behind countries such as Switzerland and other countries within the European Union on the use and the implementation clinically of PSMA. And so it's a situation in which we have a perception here in the U.S. that we're sort of on the bleeding edge when it comes to, to technology and the use of therapeutics and biologics and, and whatnot. And the reality is, is that that's not necessarily always the case. And here's one, you know, example of, of many in which we can actually sort of point to the impact on patient care that has already occurred for two years, at least, ahead of the, the U.S. And I think that kind of comes to the other counterpoint or point counterpoint that I want to make. Because I think in, in our discussions, we've kind of addressed some of the other ones. It's a point where entrepreneurship and innovation is what makes the U.S. a world leader. And so the counterpoint to that statement is, imagine how many people in the U.S. could start their own business or bring their ideas to market if they didn't have to worry about maintaining health care for their families. So many people stay tethered to jobs that they hate just so their family has health care. With workers not needing to stay in jobs they don't like in order to secure health insurance, universal health care could enable people to acquire jobs where they would be happier and more productive. Workers who wanted to start their own business could more easily do so, allowing them to enter the most creative and innovative parts of our economy, small businesses. In his book, Everything for Sale, there's an economist, Robert Kuttner, that asserts that it's important to understand that businesses outside of the U.S. don't have to provide health care for their employees, which makes them more competitive. From a business point of view, American companies released from the burden of paying employee insurance would be more competitive internationally. They would also be more profitable as they wouldn't have to do all the paperwork and the negotiating involved with being the intermediary between employees and insurance companies. So the bottom line on this point is that 
unburdening businesses from the responsibility of providing health insurance for their employees would increase competitiveness as well as encourage entrepreneurship and innovation, especially in small businesses. And so the, the question that I have for the both of you is, do you agree with that point or do you sort of have a, maybe a point against that specific point? I think you need to check your language, you liberal hippie, because I'm not going to pay for other people to have insurance is a retort I hear a lot. And I think what's really needs to be driven home is we already pay for everybody in the U.S. to have health care. Everybody does. That's what my premium is. That's what your employer's premium is. We pay for people to at least at the bare minimum have access to healthcare through an emergency room system. Imagine if we could reduce that so people can actually get preventative care. And this is something that we've talked about before about it's expensive to be poor because when you're poor, you don't go to the doctor for preventative care. You wait until it's a serious issue and probably costs 10 to 100 times more to take care of the problem instead of at the onset with the preventative care. I think by releasing employees, employers, from paying for insurance, that allows them to invest more into their company and to be more competitive, yes. And B, we already pay taxes for things to be used. Maybe cut two to 3% of our military budget to pay for healthcare because we already spend 50% of our, or more, on our budget on military. You know, if we can just go without a couple F-22 Raptors, then maybe we could let people actually have affordable and accessible health care. But, you know, our priorities as a country from a political standpoint is the perpetual war machine, because that's where our money goes to. Our money, if you, if you follow the money and if you say, oh, we care about our children, we care about our future, we care about this. Well, how are you spending your money? And that's, you know, we hold ourselves accountable to that. If a West came to me and said, oh, I really care about the rainforest. What are you doing? Are you donating to the World Wildlife Foundation? Are you helping stop Bolsonaro from raising the rainforest and burning it all down for a highway? Oh no, I just I just tweeted thoughts and feelings about it. Well, you don't really care. I think that's that's the big issue is we we have to be honest with ourselves that if this is a priority for us, if we care about it, we should hold people accountable to how they spend the money that we pay as citizens with taxes too. And that's my soapbox and I will gladly get off for a West to take a stand. <laughs> It's interesting of a point, and I have a friend who is a small business owner, and he's not in healthcare. He he has a different retail, a couple of different retail businesses, and one of his biggest concerns was, you know, I think in New Jersey the the number is fifty. If you have more than fifty employees, you have to offer them health insurance, and he was getting right around that number, and he was worried about his growth versus having to pay for healthcare insurance. And he was at a crossroads as to which way he, he, he goes. Does he continue to grow his business and then offer healthcare insurance? Or does he just kind of stay stagnant where he doesn't cap himself there not to have to take on the burden of additional, you know, healthcare insurance for his for his employees? And how much would that cost him to offer healthcare insurance? Did he give like a ballpark number of like, it's the same amount of wages or I, I didn't ask him the, the numbers on that i mean ultimately he did do the right thing and he continued to grow his business and offer his employees health care insurance but again that as a small business owner you have to think about these things and it's a real real life scenario and aj to your point we're all paying for a centralized government health insurance through medicare medicaid and our federal taxes that we pay you know on everything that we earn 
So why are we double paying if you're a small business owner? That's a very fair point, and it's a burden on small businesses. And just like you said, OS, it stagnates growth. It stagnates opportunity, and it stagnates stagnates innovation. When you have a world of startups and entrepreneurs that have, you have like two to three strategies as a startup. One, you build something so great that it can be automated with minimal employees for maximum profit. Two, you build something that you can license out and have somebody else utilize. Or three, most people have an exit strategy before they even start the company of two to three years being bought by a larger corporation because they can't afford to grow. And when you look at all of the venture capitalists in the startup community, you know, companies like Uber and Lyft and HelloFresh and all of these great unicorn businesses that still technically have not turned a profit for one quarter of their existence. They are still burning through capital, venture capitalist funds. All of these expenses are hurting our ability to compete globally too. So here's a question that I have. So about, depending on where you look at like statistics and stuff, you can see, you know, such things as like one in eight Americans work in healthcare or 12% of total number of people that are employed in the US, 12% of them work in, in healthcare. So the question becomes is that, is healthcare such a big business that if we sort of flip it and change it from being a scaled industrialized business and take it back to its original roots of, you know, practicing the art of medicine, do we end up then putting a bunch of people out of work? Yeah. Yeah, we people would have to find work elsewhere in the private insurance industry. Now, I think a lot of those people could probably transfer and find employment in a government-run healthcare system because they would know how to navigate all of these structures. Uh, most of them, you know, I would hope would have skills that could transfer to different industries. The problem with that line of thinking for me has always been that change is inevitable. Manufacturers who made beepers had to figure out what to do when the industry changed. Manufacturers of landline telephones, you know, they had to pivot and change and figure out what they did. The people that made those ran them, the landline companies themselves, pivoting and changing with the times is now a norm and a very short lifespan regularity where the things that we're doing now, the three of us, 10 years ago would not have been feasible as occupations or as employment or as jobs or somebody would even pay for us to do because there was no value there. So I think not going the the road of the Luddites of England, thinking that these looms were going to, you know, destroy the industry and put them all out of business and think of, you know what, can we do some retraining skills? You know, I don't think coal miners to coders is the right way. I think coal miners to uh, solar panel installers or wind turbine mechanics would be a little bit more feasible. Jumping from being a coal mine person to a coder is such a giant leap in skills and also just how your brain functions on a day-to-day basis. You're using a whole different part of the region of your brain and a whole different set of tools and resources that you just aren't accustomed to. And after 20, 30, 40 years of working one way, having to switch is really hard. But if you can take those and do lateral moves to other industries, that I think would be, in my opinion, more successful for changes in our culture moving towards the future. Similarly, in our, in our city here in Rochester, 
one of the biggest issues in the last five to seven years was where's Uber and Lyft? When I fly into Rochester for Mayo Clinic and for treatment, why don't you have a ride sharing service? And not only that, but why do I have to call a taxi and wait a half hour? Why don't you have taxis lined up outside the door? Our local tax company fought tooth and nail to avoid having the rideshare services come to town. And eventually the future happened and they did. And instead of trying to work with the change in culture and the change in people's desires, they are now slowly dying out because they couldn't adapt. And it goes to the author Brian Solis. Uh, he wrote an entire book on it, Adapt or Die. And that's, that's the call for any business nowadays is if you're not flexible or adaptable, you will die and your business will not survive. So Soapbox is yours, Wes, sorry. I'm on a rant today, I apologize. <laughs> it's all good. So I would actually say that after that rant, it's probably a good, <laughs> it's probably a good place for, for us to transition. So uh, Wes. So before we segue into the next topic, I just wanna put something in the back of um, our listeners' minds. So Andy, you brought up the economist Robert Kuttner, and I wanna, share one of his other uh, claims that he made. And he said, for profit chains claim to increase efficiencies by centralizing administration, cutting waste, buying supplies in bulk at discounted rates, negotiating discounted fees with medical professionals, shifting to less wasteful forms of care and consolidating duplicative facilities. And then he points out, using that logic, the most efficient chain of all is a universal national health system. So I just want to put that in our listeners' ears, just as something to think about. And then I also want to put in a plug for our next podcast. So in this podcast, we talk a lot about what is happening in healthcare. The next podcast we want to talk about is the financial toxicity and the burden on patients from this healthcare system. So I want to make a plug for our next podcast with this. Now, an article that um, I read recently and I want to share with you guys is that there was a study that came out of Japan which looked at the relationship between people's dietary habits and what they tried to do is they tried to link that directly with the occurrence of chronic kidney disease. Now, based on the findings of the study, there is merit to the argument that skipping out on breakfast and eating a late dinner might be associated with the higher risk of proteinuria, which is a prognostic factor of chronic kidney disease, also known as CKD. So CKD is a risk factor for end-stage renal disease and cardiovascular disease, which is a significant problem in many countries, including the US. The most common causes of, of CKD are diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity. So these researchers planned a study using a questionnaire used in annual medical checkups at their doctor's office with the cooperation of their medical association. They conducted a retrospective study in which they investigated over 26,000 patients aged 40 and older who underwent medical checkups between 1998 and 2014. So unhealthy dietary habits were categorized as uh, eating a late dinner, eating dinner within two hours of going to bed at a frequency of three or more times a week, skipping breakfast three or more times a week, quick eating, eating faster than people of the same age group, and late evening snacking, eating snacks after dinner three or more times a week. So the study concluded that quick eating, which compromised about 29%, was the most common unhealthy dietary habit in the whole patient population followed by late dinner, about 19%, late, eat, uh, late evening snacking, about 16%, and skipping breakfast, which was about 9%. So over a follow-up of three years, 10% of those patients developed proteinuria, again, which is a prognostic factor for CKD. Of these dietary habits, skipping breakfast and late dinner were associated with an increased risk of developing proteinuria. The surprising thing about this study was that dietary habits were not associated with changes in body weight. So now having read through the study, 
I, for one, am guilty of at least two of these unhealthy dietary habits listed in the study. So I tend to eat rather quickly, I think, maybe, I don't know. And I enjoy a late evening snack before bedtime. And as I'm quickly getting older and older, I'm trying to cut back on the late night snacking, but definitely it is one of my vices. So how about you guys? Do you have any dietary habits that you're not proud of? So here's my question for you. Uh, that late night snack, is it sweet, salt, combination of both? What's what's your go-to? Uh, so it used to be ice cream, which is like the worst thing you can do for yourself. <laughs> I've had okay. like a big bowl of ice cream before bed every night. So I've kind of shied away from that. You know, now I'll do like those corn flour tortilla chips um, and a little bit of salsa. But, you know, again, I'm trying to shy away from that as well. So I think in the past month I've had it maybe once or twice. So I'm definitely trying to cut back on that. No, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of the quick eating and I've been working really hard on masticating. That's a really terrible dad joke there, but uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the uh, Kellogg's back at the turn of the century when there was a huge movement about chewing, chewing your food more as a as a healthy dietary thing. And I, I think that with how we eat, there's so much research out on the healthiness of eating together as a family, for dinner, taking time to have conversation while you're eating. All of those things help eat slower. And what happens when we eat a little slower is we eat less because our body has time to tell us we're full. And I think that's just, that's like the bottom line is all of these tips and tricks and fads are basically to eat less calories. And as much as I hate to admit it, and I've admitted it before in this podcast, my eighth grade science teacher was right. And he said, give me 30 bucks and I'll tell you the secret to how to lose weight. And he said, eat less, exercise more. Now give me 30 bucks. Every, every diet, every fad, every plan is just you know, as the older I get, the more I realize, oh, that guy was right. Everything's about eating less calories and exercising more and moving your body more. And I think that's what it comes down to. And what I found interesting with this is intermittent fasting is the newest craze. And what it does is it just reduces the amount of time you have to eat. And so you can't shove your face in for 12 hours. It's six hours or four hours, whatever you choose. And ultimately you eat less calories. But it sounds like by doing that, you're adding more protein into your uric stream, correct? Yep. If I remember correctly, this is also an issue that a lot of early CrossFit gyms had with people who over-exercised way too much with CrossFit by having a type of CKD, like almost like a protein shock syndrome or something on that order where there was too much protein in their bloodstream and urine. Do you guys remember anything about that? I'm not aware of that. Yeah, I'm not either. So while AJ's looking up uh, and doing his fact checking, for me myself, I can probably say I'm a victim of quick eating when I remember to eat. That's kind of my bigger issue is that I just either I'm so busy or I'm doing so many different things and I'm running from one to the other that oftentimes I forget to eat until it's later in the evening. So I skip breakfast, so bad on me. I do drink my coffee though, I, I need that. Late evening snacks, so a Wes, I'm a salt kind of person. And if I can get savory and salt at the same time, that's even better. But I am I too am a victim of sort of, I need a late night snack at like, you know, 10, 10.30 at night before I go to bed. So yeah, definitely a bad habit there. So yeah, I kind of fail all of these. <laughs> 
And I think a lot of us do. And, you know, it's good that we're talking about it to highlight what the study found. And again, it's not earth shattering. It's not a very high number of individuals, but it's still something to think about as we know that, you know, cardiovascular disease and diabetes are really prevalent in our society. So we should think about these small changes that we can make to really help ourselves in our lifestyles. You know what's interesting about this is that if I was to jump over to when I travel to Europe or the Middle East or, or places like that, the culture is you tend to eat late, but you sit down and it is, I don't want to say it's an event, but it's a time in which you have conversation, you are breaking bread with family, friends, others, and it's not sort of this get done, get on to the next thing. You know, for me, I that's the one thing that I love, well, not the one thing, but one of the biggest things that I enjoy about sort of those cultures is, is that you naturally eat later, you've got time to sort of sit, talk, converse with those around you. And yeah, so it's it's interesting. So I come from those cultures where you sit and you eat and you eat and you eat and you eat. <laughs> so, you know, basically, you know, it just kind of forces your hand to just continue eating. And then, you know, if you're with friends, family as, that are hosting you for a dinner, you know, they're very insistent on you continuously eating. So I don't know how much good that does. But yeah, I, I definitely see the value in sitting down and having and breaking bread with friends and, you know, having conversations and making it an event as opposed to just an activity. If, if anything, we should take away from this is, you know, chew your food, just like, you know, you're told as a kid, but just eat less, exercise more. I did find the article I was thinking about, about CrossFit. It was called rhabdomyolysis, or excuse me, it's a breakdown in the muscles where it releases protein myoglobin into your bloodstream and causes injury to the kidney. So that was the connection in my head of, it was protein and myoglobin that breaks down, gets released into your bloodstream, and then you wind up having tea-colored urine. Some CrossFit people almost died from over-exercising and having this huge amount of protein in their bloodstream. Interesting. So AJ, to combat that, would you just hydrate more with that alleviate that? You know, that's a good question. Let me scroll down to what causes it, how's it diagnosed, how dangerous is it, how is it treated? Usual treatment is by oral or IV fluids. This helps the kidneys flush the myoglobin into the urine. Creatine levels are monitored until they go back down to normal, so probably a little bit too much of that pre-workout creatine dosage. But yeah, I think good electrolytes and hydration is the key. And that's an easy thing to forget to do while working out. If your body is breaking down and you need help, we've actually found, especially on the tech side of things, some really intriguing new research on wound healing biomaterials that also help activate the immune system for stronger skin. So in Duke University and the University of California, LA, They've developed a biomaterial that significantly reduces scar formation after wounding and leads to more effective skin healing. It quickly degrades once the wound is healed and closed and demonstrates that activating an adaptive immune response can trigger regenerative wound healing, leaving behind stronger and healthier healed skin. So now I'm just waiting until they transfer this to the, the beauty industry where you can wear a mask of this biomaterial and have better skin at night. The interesting thing is they are building hydrogel scaffolds. So kind of like think about graphene type uh, hexagon builds. It creates a structure to support tissue growth, accelerating wound healing, and shows that this new modified version 
activates a regenerative immune response, which can potentially help heal skin injuries like burns, cuts, diabetic ulcers, and other wounds that normally heal with significant scars. This is really interesting. So in, in your worlds in radiation oncology, you know, scars do occur and there are issues like this. Have you ever worked with any hydrogels or biomaterials that help with scar tissue and scar healing? In radiation oncology, there's kind of two aspects to this. One is when it comes to sort of pre-treatment or during treatment, we're always beyond cautious. We're like obsessed to a point about making sure there's no creams, lotions, hydrogels, things like that on a patient's skin, because oftentimes there's a metal or, or some sort of metallic aspect to it. And if that's on a patient's skin and absorbed in, or even, you know, it hasn't absorbed in, but then they have the, their treatment, it can actually cause a hyper reaction, which very detrimental to the breakdown of the skin can cause open wounds. Just so we're, we're very sort of aware of that. And we educate our patients on that on the back end, sort of after treatment and when they go home overnight and whatnot, we educate on the right type of lotions, gels, creams to, to use. I happen to be familiar with sort of a hydrogel called Aquaphor that we always thought was really good for, for skincare and, and whatnot. When it comes to sort of this specific type of, of wound healing and biomaterials and, and hydrogels, I don't have a lot of experience other than sort of the old go-to of sylvadine. Sylvadine is something that we would have patients use in extreme cases of having, you know, sort of burnt skin, opened wounds starting to, to happen. So that's kind of where my, you know, knowledge and experience uh, in the real world sort of starts and ends. I think this article is interesting and what these researchers have done is really interesting. To Andy's point, you know, with radiation, we're very, very specific. And this is using a, a DNA sequencing where it's going to try to regenerate the tissues and the cells itself and use the body itself to regenerate some of these, you know, less scarring tissues. The problem is that we're, as we're applying radiation, we're going to beat down on these cells so much that we don't know what, and we're going to mutate these cells. We don't know what kind of effect that could possibly have on this hydrogel. So I don't think I would really recommend this for radiation just because we don't know what the outcome could be and it could be disastrous. But I think this would be a really, really interesting case for you know burn victims and burn units. Having patients that have full body scars, I can really see this as a game changer in those industries or those fields that would require this. I think what I'm most fascinated about is the fact that they're starting to learn how to really manipulate and trigger our immune system for better healing and better responses. And that is the type of biomedical future stuff that I love hearing about because when you when you get down to it, it's going to become such a common everyday thing. But right now, it's something straight out of sci-fi. It reminds me of the Bacta tanks in Star Wars, you know, when they just submerge in this Bacta and it heals you. like. Maybe that's not too far off from reality that you know we're, we'll be able to use those in the future to just heal from our injuries because they'll be able to trigger autoimmune responses. Going for a swim, Andy, when you get sick. You know, I I think a lot of the stuff that we see from you know science fiction is sort of the the future, and I think that there's a lot of hope for for this type of technology and, and use. You know, as OS said, burn victims. 
I love seeing this technology and these sort of use cases because these are the things that really truly impact people's lives as they have sort of a, a large trauma, something that happens to them, and there's you know a physical sort of reminder and scar and wound that goes along with that. And so being able to heal that, remedy that, leveraging part of your own sort of biochemistry and, and DNA to do so, I think it's it's amazing. And this really goes back into, you know, all medicine in the future will sort of point to an N of one. So I, I think this is a, a fantastic article and I'm really glad you brought it to our attention. So what other final thoughts do you guys have over everything we talked about? I think we had some really big issues, especially with talking about a disruption to the healthcare system, which thankfully is finally a topic we're all discussing, some more civilly than others. But we've got that. We've got good tips about eating healthy, and the future is now. Wes, do you have final thoughts? No, I think it was really interesting, and I'm actually looking forward to our next podcast, where we're going to go and break that down a little bit further into detail. And I think we have a really exciting guest that's going to be able to really shed some light on the corporate side of things. It sounds like we're having Scrooge McDuck on the next episode. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) We'll have to make sure that we uh, introduce him as such. Uh, So with that, you know, just a, a final comment from my perspective. I think what we started out with is the realization, you know, something that I've been passionate about, I pontificate, I probably talk a little bit too much about, is the fact that The art of medicine has transferred, it's been scaled, it's sort of been recreated in this post-industrialized world into a business, and that business is called healthcare. And unfortunately, our media, uh, those of us that work inside, alongside, outside of of healthcare, uh, we use that. We call it healthcare. And I think we need to start changing our words because the words that we use build worlds. And I think the world that all of us want is a world which is N of one, where it's the art of medicine, which goes to the other two articles. What can I do on a daily basis to ensure I'm living my best life and I'm being as healthy as I possibly can? And the second aspect is is that how do we deliver care at the end of one that truly impacts the patient in their moment of need and trauma. And so with that, I think that's a really good place for us to to wrap. Perfect. Well, I've been AJ Montpetit. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at AJ Montpetit. And I'm Awes Mirza, and you can find me on Twitter at Awes F. Mirza. And as always, you can find me, Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, on all of the social media platforms. And remember, At the end of the day, it's all about practicing medicine at the end of one. At the end of the day, the end of the day, it's all about practicing practicing medicine. Practicing medicine at the end of one.